with us, and I'm thankful for the opportunity to uh, bring the message again, and I'm grateful that Dada asked me to do it one more time. Um, they are, if you don't know, on a vacation. Uh, I don't really know where they are at this point, but they are. They were flying to Seattle and then hopping on a big boat and going to Alaska, and it's going to be a really fun trip for them. And I was really excited that they got to go, um, as they haven't been able to do something to that level in a very long time. So I was, I was happy that they were able to go, a little disappointed they didn't take all of us, but it's fine. Um, <laughs> um, anyway, so we're glad that they get to go, and we're glad that, uh, that uh, we're here uh, today. So we're going to continue on. We've been looking at the book of Mark um, in our sermon series, and we're going to continue that today. And uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles with you, um, we're really just going to take a look at the verses, uh, section of those verses out of uh, late, late in Mark 11 and then early Mark 12. And um, we're going to kind of just walk through them together and hopefully uh, um, learn something this morning uh, together. Have you ever been around somebody that was a good storyteller? Somebody that whenever they tell a story, you really listen in because you know that it's going to be good. Either it will be really entertaining uh, or it will just be something that you can relate to or, or something along those lines. I fancy myself as a pretty decent storyteller um, and uh, I've had a couple of people tell me they really enjoy when I tell stories, but um, there's a part of Jesus' messages that when he would deliver these stories, people would really listen. Now, the difference between you know a good storyteller telling about something that they uh, had encountered in their life, maybe it was uh, a funny moment uh, that they had with their kids, or maybe it was um, something that they went through and they learned, the difference between just a, a good storyteller and the type of stories that Jesus told were that Jesus' stories typically had a purpose. And there's a word that we call those stories. We call them parables. And so we're going to look at one of those parables today. Jesus told a few of them. Um, and we're going to look at one of those today. We read it uh, together, the scripture that we read earlier, where Jesus was talking about that he is the vine and we are the branches. And so we're going to talk about a parable where he uses that imagery to deliver a message, uh, and it was one that was um, not easily swallowed for the people that were listening. So we're going to take a look at that today. Uh, the verses that we're going to start out with are Mark 11, verse 27. But right before we get into what our scripture is going to be today, I want to give you a little backstory on what was happening just before Mark 11 and verse 27. You see, Jesus had just done something that was pretty radical. And it was something that everybody saw as an act of rebellion or an act of blasphemy. You see, Jesus had been walking around and doing his ministry for a little while now. And when he got to Jerusalem, he went to the temple. And this was not out of the ordinary. It was something that would, should be expected of a sort of good God-fearing Jew to head to the temple at some point. So uh, when he went to the temple, he saw something that he, I don't think, was quite prepared for. <laughs> when he got there, he saw um, a lot of vendors that had set up shop and were selling wares uh, to the people who were coming to the temple. And Jesus 
did something that was a little unusual. (laughs) You see, these people had set up shop at the temple because the temple was where you went to worship. And these vendors thought that if they could sell some things that would aid in people's worship, then their worship experience would be all the better. The problem was they're selling for profit at the temple. And that was a little bit not what we were supposed to do. (laughs) And so they had set up all of their tables. They were selling doves and they were selling these little trinkets that you could use for worship and And when Jesus caught wind of this, and he went and he saw it for himself, well, he he didn't exactly like what was happening. You see, Jesus was fully aware what the temple meant and what what was supposed to be happening at temple was that you were supposed to be worshiping God, which being Jesus who he was... you're supposed to be worshiping his father, and that's just not not what we do. We don't don't really... It'd be sort of similar if we... um, Now, we we have sold things here at the church, right? We've had garage sales. We've had, um, you know, little car washes where people give money and donate to the cause. But it would be a little bit different if we had set up a table right near the front door as people were coming in and asking them to buy little um, glasses of holy water that may have just come out of the water fountain in in the hallway. I don't know. Or maybe we go to research and just buy some extra virgin olive oil and we just put a little bit of oil in a little container and say, here's some oil. It's holy. (laughs) It'd be something like that, something similar, and that would feel off. It would feel not right. And so when Jesus saw this going on, he he, he kind of, well, he walked in and, and, and it wasn't really, well, he kind of, turn the tables over, <laughs> and not figuratively, like literally turn the tables over, walking through the temple and saying that this is, had been turned into something that it was completely not supposed to be. And it wasn't like he had come in and said, wow, this is just, this is just unusual. Okay, well, I'm, I'm not a fan. I don't think this is right. Um, if we could just close this up, that'd be great. No, Jesus took real big offense to the fact that these people had set up shop in a place that was reserved for a worship experience. And so Jesus had gone into the temple, he had thrown the tables over, and he had said, "This is you're no longer to make the temple, and he even says it, a den of thieves, <laughs> which is pretty, pretty cutting phrasing. And so that had just been going on. Jesus had just had this incident happen. And people started to wonder, well, who is this Jesus? Who is this guy who thinks he can just come into the temple, mess up the shops that we have? You see, the the religious leaders of the day, well, they had a couple of issues. (laughs) We've talked about it before where they had made something they had taken the Ten Commandments and they had expanded them out. Um, Don talked a couple of weeks ago about how they had taken this one set of this set of ten rules. God had said, "All right, this is what I want you to live by." These ten rules. It's pretty easy. <laughs> five of them are for me. Five of them are for you. <laughs> and it's that's all. That's all you got to do. You just got to live by these these tenets, these rules, these guidelines. This is what I want you to focus on. 
Well, the religious leaders of the day had said, you know what, that's, I mean, that's, that's a good start. That's a good place, that's a, that's a good starting line. Whereas God had said, no, man, this is it. This is all we need. This is the ten. This, this is all you got. <laughs> you can find everything you need in these ten. But the Jewish religious leaders of the day said, but, ah, I mean, that's, that's okay, but what, is this, what does it really mean? And so they began to expound on the Ten Commandments and those guidelines that God had set forth of them written in stone uh, and, and made it out to be this enormous set of rules and laws and guidelines. 600 some odd. My favorite, Dad had mentioned a few of them um, a couple of weeks ago, but he didn't mention my favorite. My favorite was, um, you know, a, a lot of it was uh, about keeping the Sabbath and making sure that you keep the Sabbath holy. And so the idea was that you cannot work uh, on the Sabbath. But my favorite one that I remember from my study in college was uh, if you needed to travel somewhere on the Sabbath, traveling would be considered work. But if you left your shoe at a certain distance away from your home and then walked back the day before the Sabbath, you could then walk to your shoe on the Sabbath and that wouldn't be considered work because that was a part of your home. I don't even understand how you would get to that point. But that, that was some of the laws and rules that they had made. They had said, okay, we get the Sabbath, we want to keep it holy, but how do we keep it holy? And so they created this whole list of rules and laws and overcomplicated the, the system that God had set forth. And so, in a lot of ways, not even in a lot of ways, in, in the way, Jesus had come to say, look, you guys are just making it too difficult. It's really that easy. You just got to love God and you got to love people. When he was asked, well, okay, well then how do you sum up the law? And Jesus responded by saying, you just, you love God and you love others. That's, that's pretty much it. And so when he enters into things that people are doing that have taken those rules and those laws and they've sort of confused the whole system like selling stuff in a worship experience to make it better, Jesus tried to take offense. He took offense. And so that had just happened. So now in, in Mark chapter 11 and verse 27, people start to question Jesus' authority. They start to say, who is this Jesus really? I mean, when we really get down to it, who is this guy? And so if you'll follow along with me, Mark chapter 11, verse 27, it says, They came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and elders came to him, and they began saying to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you authority to do these things? And then Jesus, I, man, I just really love his responses. Because Jesus is, he doesn't pull any punches, and that's what I love. He just gets right to the point. And, and it says, verse 29, Jesus said to them, I'll ask you one question, and you answer me, then I will tell you by authority, what authority I do these things. So Jesus is like, okay, I get it. You want to know why I, I do the things that I do? I, I understand. We can chat about that, but I'm going to ask you one question. Have you ever had a teacher that does that, that that is how they help you learn. When you ask a question, they just ask you a question to keep you learning. <laughs> that always frustrated me when I was growing up. 
because I just wanted to know the answer, mainly because I was a really horrible student. So I just wanted the work done for me. <laughs> Misty can probably attest to this. Um, <laughs> she's nodding. Yeah, it's true. Uh, I, when I asked a question, I just wanted the answer because I, I was always looking for the easiest way to the end goal. But when a teacher really looks at you and when you ask them a question and they ask you a question to keep the learning going, that's really the best way to learn. Because then you're having to think for yourself. And so Jesus responds to their question by saying, okay, I'm going to ask you one thing. And depending on how you answer it, then we'll talk about how I have the authority. So he says his question, verse 30, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. What an interesting question. <laughs> of course, everybody had heard about John the Baptist by this point. Of course, he, had, uh, he was no longer living at this point, but everybody knew who he was. There was this guy who preceded Jesus going around in, uh, in Israel, Jerusalem, and the towns, and, and baptizing people uh, in the name of God. Now, baptism was not necessarily new to Jewish culture. Uh, in fact, baptism was something that they had sort of already been doing, although it wasn't really the same. It was for a real, kind of a different purpose. But they had these pools, these small pools, that stairs on each side, and a person would walk in and sort of get in the water, and then they would walk out. And that was sort of a, a form of baptism that they were already doing. And so it wasn't completely unfamiliar that John the Baptist was doing what he was doing, but he was really doing it for a different purpose. You see, whereas the baptism that they had been practicing was to wash the outside, John was practicing baptism to wash the inside. And so Jesus asked them because he knew what they had already thought about what John the Baptist was doing. You see, the religious leaders of the day did not so much care for what John the Baptist was doing. Because it was taking away from what they were trying to teach. And so Jesus asked them, okay, was the baptism of John from heaven or was it from men? And I love what happens next. These religious leaders, in verse 31, it says, they began reasoning among themselves. They began chatting to themselves, debating on, on Jesus' question. And they're saying, if we, okay, all right, okay, well, let's, let's, just, let's just work this out. I imagine they had like, um, um, you know, well, not pen and paper, but like, um, I don't know, sheepskin and quill or something, whatever they used. And, uh, and so, okay, so they're writing, they've got bullet points, right? Okay, so if we do this, then it's going to be this. But if we say this, then it's going to be this. I mean, it's right here, verse 31. Okay, if we say from heaven, he'll say, well, then why don't you believe in him? But if we say from men, then they were afraid uh, of the people, for everyone considered John to be a real prophet. And you start to see the reasoning of the religious leaders of the day these scribes and elders, you start to see sort of their self-motivation. <laughs> if we say it was for men, they were afraid of the crowds because people believed that John was a prophet. So they did what any normal person would do in a predicament uh, that has been asked a question that they don't really want to answer. They simply said... Okay, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. They sort of took the question and just said, you know what, I, I mean, we could answer it this way, we could answer it that way, but honestly, nah, you know what, Jesus, we, we just don't know. 
Why don't you just give us the answer? It's a lot like probably what I would have said. And so they said, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, okay, well then nor not will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You see, I think Jesus and the Holy Spirit in, his, uh, in us today, I think, he, I think we still get some of this in our own lives and in our own hearts. You see, when we ask God a question or when we prompt the Holy Spirit for an answer to something that we've got going on in our lives, sometimes I feel like we may be presented with another question. But the interesting thing about what Jesus has said to them just now, well, I don't have to tell you by what authority I do these things. You see, what Jesus is essentially telling them is, I don't really need to answer to you. Because I am who I say I am. And we see that when Jesus says this later in front of Pilate. But the interesting thing that Jesus does is that it doesn't end there. The conversation, the interaction doesn't really end at that statement. Jesus doesn't say, oh, I don't have to tell you, and then walk away. No, see, Jesus then enters into a story that these scribes and elders and religious leaders would immediately understand the imagery that he was trying to convey. And so he starts talking about a man who creates a vineyard. So chapter 12, verse 1, he says, He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey or went away or moved away or something, whatever your version says. So here he is, he starts talking about this vineyard. He creates this little uh, vineyard farm. He makes, uh, puts up the vines, puts up some protection, some walls around it and a tower so people can watch out for it. Uh, and then he, instead of tending it himself, hires or rents it out to uh, a farmer to tend. The man still owns it. But he has gone somewhere else, maybe to create a new vineyard somewhere else, maybe back home, maybe he didn't live in this area. But at any rate, he creates this, this vineyard, sets up some protection, rents it out to a farmer to tend, and then leaves. Verse 2, at the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce uh, of the vineyard from the vine growers. Now, this was not out of the ordinary, a person who owned the vineyard had a right to collect a portion of the produce or profits of that vineyard. And anybody who was tending that farm would have understood that. There would have been some sort of a contract or something that they would have worked out uh, to make that happen. And so the owner sends in a slave and says, okay, I need you to go to my vineyard that's here and I want you to grab some of the produce because I own it and I want some of it. So in verse 3, this is where things get a little bit interesting. It says, they took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. <laughs> That's a fine how do you do. So here's this slave. He gets to the uh, vineyard. He has pretty clear instructions. Okay, I want the owner says, I want you to get uh, uh, this portion of the profits or the produce. I want you to bring it back. We'll be set. Well, when he gets there, he is not greeted warmly. (laughs) 
and he's sent back empty-handed. Now, if I were the owner and I had my slave come back to me empty-handed, but also taken advantage of and beaten physically, I would be a little upset. I would probably, after the first one, go to the vineyard and say, look, guys, I think we got off on the wrong foot. You beat my guy, and that's not cool. So, (laughs) but keep in mind that this story is a story with a purpose. And so in verse 4, it says, again, he sent another slave, and they wounded him in the head (laughs) and treated him shamefully. So again, he sends another person to collect what is rightfully his as the owner of the vineyard, and the people who are there tending the vineyard give him a head wound, which I feel like is probably worse than the first one, and then treat him shamefully. Not nice guys. Verse 5, so he sent another, and that one they killed. And so with many others, beating some and killing others. Now here's what's interesting about this story. You see, at first, I think if I was hearing this, if I was one of these, uh, if I could put myself in the religious leader's sandals for just a second, and I could, and I could imagine hearing this story for the very first time as Jesus was telling it in the moment. And I start hearing about these servants that were being sent to the vineyard to collect the profits that the owner rightfully had. And each one, they were being beaten and sent home. And then it even says that so many others were sent. It wasn't just three, it was many others. Servants or slaves that were sent to collect. And all of them were either beaten and some were killed. At that point in the story, I would start to say, well, this owner must really not care for his servants. (laughs) Because he keeps sending them despite knowing exactly what's going to happen when they go. But keep in mind, again, the story has a purpose. And these religious leaders may have started to pick pick up on the fact that there might be just a little bit more to this story than a vineyard owner not really caring for his servants. So then in verse 6, he says, He had one more to send, a beloved son. And he sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. So what Jesus is doing here is imparting to these religious leaders of the day a story about his and God's relationship with Israel. You see, Israel had started out and they had gone into slavery and then God brought them out of slavery and then they did a couple of things that were a little eh, a little off. And so they wandered in the desert for a, a little while. But then they eventually made it to where they were going. And there were certainly hardships along the way. But eventually they did get to that, that place that God had promised. But when they got to that place, they got complacent. And when they got complacent, they started to lose track of 
the relationship that they were supposed to have with God. And so all throughout, I mean, you can read it in the Old Testament, all throughout the history of the Israelite people, God's chosen people, there were so many chances that they had to come back. And God had sent so many servants to them to try and bring them back. If you read through First and Second Kings or Samuel's uh, or, or any of those books uh, in the Old Testament that talk about the servants that God had set up for the people of Israel to, to not only keep them together, but to keep them together in their faith with what God had provided for them. I mean, by then they were so many generations removed from the hardships that they had as slaves in Israel and then as slaves in Babylon. They'd been, they'd been through all of these things. And God kept sending servant after servant after servant to bring them back. And each time, the Israelites would send them away or treat them with ill will or sometimes kill them. And so one time, one last time, he said, okay, I'm going to send one last one. It's going to be my son. And in verse 6, in the story, Jesus says, they will respect my son. What happens? Verse 7, but those vine growers said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Interesting. Let us kill the heir, because then the inheritance we can take for ourselves. So they took him, they killed him, and then threw them out of the vineyard. Verse 9, what would the owner of the vineyard do? He would come and destroy the vine growers and give the vineyard to others. Now, this is an interesting story. And I think by this point, the religious scribes and elders and leaders of the day, who were quite knowledgeable of the scriptures up until this point, probably started to pick up on what Jesus was talking about. I think by this point, they probably started to get a little uneasy because now Jesus is talking about them the time for the son to be killed hasn't yet arrived but it's looming that day is coming and I think Jesus knows it and I think the religious leaders of the day are starting to feel it and so Jesus tells them this story we've sent you Servant after servant after servant, and each time you didn't do it. Each time you didn't stay together. Each time God was trying to send you a message, and we didn't hear it. And so he said, one last time, I'm going to send my son. And it was through our selfishness, that we said, this is the heir. If we kill him, the inheritance will be ours. That's not how it works. 
And in verse 10, he says, Have you not even read the scripture, which they surely had, but he quotes it anyway. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is marvel- and it is marvelous in our eyes. You see, Jesus was quick to quote a psalm that they would have been quite familiar with. You see, in architecture, when you're building something and you have that cornerstone, if you don't set it just right, then the whole building is off. Now, I admittedly know nothing about construction. I uh, can't even do Legos, really. (laughs) But what little I do know is that if that cornerstone or that capstone is not set just right, at the right angle, the right weight, the whole building, all of the rest of it will be uneven or not right. And so Jesus uses a scripture from the Psalms that they would have been very familiar with to give them even more imagery about just what he was doing and just what he was saying. Because he is letting them know, I am here to fulfill what this scripture says. I am that cornerstone. And it is the cornerstone that you are rejecting. And I love the the last verse of our text today, verse 12. It says, They were seeking to seize him, yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. So they left and went away. They were ready to seize him then but they were afraid of the crowd. You see, Jesus had started to, to win some people over. Jesus had started to, to let people and get people to see he was the real deal. The religious leaders were still holding on to it through their selfishness or through whatever, but the crowds were starting to really see, no, this Jesus guy, he is it. He's the real deal. He's the guy that we're supposed to follow. But the religious leaders, for whatever reason, decided that they wanted to hold on to what little power they had. And so they were in that moment ready to seize him and ready to take care of him, (laughs) so to speak. Yet because they knew they did not have the support of the mob, they backed away and waited for another time, which we'll get to. But you see, Jesus all throughout his ministry, would tell these stories. I love a good story. And I love a good time with somebody who is a good storyteller. But even more than a good story is a story with a purpose. And just because this story happened to be aimed at religious leaders of Jesus' day, it doesn't mean that we can't put ourselves in their sandals and for a second see Yeah, that's kind of, he's kind of talking to us. See, I know in my own life, God has sent me chance after chance after chance after chance, 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 chance. And each time, it seems like I trip up or I fail or I do something wrong again. But the wonderful thing about what happens just a little bit later in this story, in this story of Mark, where Jesus not only 
has made people see that he is the fulfillment of the scripture that they are so closely holding on to and writing so many extra things to. He's, he's literally that cornerstone that some of those builders had rejected. He was there to fulfill what all of the scripture had been written up until this point. You see, if you read through all of the Old Testament, it keeps talking about this Messiah who's going to come. He's going to set people free. The Jews are still waiting for Him this day. And they haven't yet realized that he has, He's here. He's been here. He's been through the grave and He's alive and He's ready to take us back and He's ready to give us the hope and promise of an eternal life if we would just accept it. And so he's been giving us chance after chance after chance because that's all he wants from us. That's all he desires is that we would give our hearts to him and that we would submit our whole selves to what he wants for us and then take that love and take that hope and share it with others so that others can join in as well. And so sure, the story, the parable today about a vineyard and so, so many servants sent to it. Sure, it was pointed and directed to religious leaders of the day. But can we not also put ourselves in their place? And say, Jesus, I know you've given me chance after chance. I'm ready to stop wasting my chances. Give my whole self to you so that your glory can be realized in my heart, in my life today. So that I can take that and share that hope with others. Father, thank you for the message that you've given us through the book of Mark. Thank you for the stories that you told. That while they may have been directed at a specific set of people in your time, we can still see that you are cutting at our hearts today. And so, Father, as we look inward today, and as we look at what chances that we've been given and may be squandered, we simply ask that your Spirit would guide us today back to you. That we would stop wasting time and wasting chances and hold fully to you, give our whole selves to you, Put away everything else. Put it behind us. And move forward with your hope and your promise. God, we sure love you. We thank you for Jesus and what he said, what he did, and what your spirit continues to do in our hearts today. We love you. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.